This is the heart of critical theory. Any authoritative meaning that passes itself off as objective truth is inherently discriminating and oppressive. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What is social justice? Does social justice differ from the type of justice we see in the Bible? And if so, how should believers pursue true biblical justice? Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part 13 of his series titled Trending Versus Truth, exploring the biblical response to various moral issues that are trending, including gender, sexuality, morality, and social justice issues. The issue of social justice, often linked to the issue of racism, is certainly a prevalent topic in today's culture. And as you'll be reminded today, the Bible holds the only answer to the issues of racism and inequality. What about you, friend? Do you hold to God's definition of true justice, or are you pursuing a type of justice that stems from a fractured and faulty worldview? Keep those things in mind as we join Tom now on The Word Unleashed. Now, as we begin, let me frame it this way. Our culture has rejected the biblical teaching about the sin of racism and the biblical solution and has embraced in its place the social justice movement and its Marxist philosophy. Now, many Christians are understandably tempted to support this movement. I say understandably because as believers, of course, we understand that we should completely and utterly reject racism. We also have beating in our hearts a desire for justice, for true justice, for true social justice. The justice that is offered in the social justice movement is not biblical justice. In fact, as we will learn by God's standard, it is injustice. Now, the proponents of the social justice movement say that they want us to renounce racism and promote justice. Those seem like certainly worthy goals. But what you have to understand is that we are talking two different languages. Their definitions of the key terms, both racism and justice, are unique. They reject the traditional definitions and hold only to those definitions that they have created. Their authorities are untrustworthy. They ignore the Scripture and support their ideas with the teaching of scholars in the fields of sociology and philosophy. Their diagnosis of the real problem is flawed. They teach that racism is not because of the fall and human depravity, but it is instead the external struggle for power and economic advantage. Their assignment of guilt is unjust. They don't assign guilt based on the heart and actions of individuals, but rather based on race and life circumstances. Their solution to the problem is completely worthless because their solution does not seek to root out societal injustices, but merely reverses the role or the roles of oppressors and oppressed. 
It completely ignores the real problem behind racism and injustice, the fallen human heart, and in the end, it offers no real forgiveness and no lasting change, only perpetual penance. That's the only solution. Now, as we begin, let me just make it clear that there are two very wrong reactions that as Christians we can have to the social justice movement in our country. Two wrong reactions. On the one end, one wrong reaction is to deny that the sin of racism, in biblical terms, that's the sins of prejudice, favoritism, and hatred, to deny that the sin of racism is still pervasive in the human heart and therefore in our culture and in all cultures. That's a wrong reaction. A second wrong reaction is to embrace the social justice movement as both the right diagnosis of the problem and the right solution to the problem. Now, as we begin this study, I also want to begin with a couple of important caveats. The first caveat is this, and you understand this, this is a complex issue and simply cannot be exhaustively explained in two sermons. In preparation for these messages, I've read many articles and six books, both pro and con, and I just have to tell you honestly, I found myself so frustrated this week because it's impossible to say everything I want to say in these two messages, but I don't want to have more messages on this issue. So understand that. My goal is not to exhaust this subject or you, but to inform you of the main issues that are involved. A second caveat is that if when I finish today, you feel that I've neglected something important, obviously I can't say everything important today, so please stay tuned and give me time. Hopefully, by the time I'm done, I will have covered the important issues. Thirdly, another caveat I want to give you is the first half of today's message is going to be more like a classroom as we seek to understand the sort of prevailing secular philosophy that's out there. And then the second half of this message, and next week, we'll turn to the Scripture. So please be patient with me. We are going to get there, but I think it's crucial to understand what's actually being taught in our world. And then the final caveat I would give is this. You know, gathered around the throne someday, they're going to be people of every tribe and tongue and nation. That's what the kingdom of Christ is like. I love that. And I don't want, and it's been my fervent prayer that this issue and my addressing it, I don't want it to disrupt or endanger the sweet unity that we enjoy in Christ. Can we all commit together both to pray for that and to endeavor that in our own hearts and lives? With those caveats, let's begin our study of this issue as we have throughout this series on what's trending by considering, first of all, a functional definition. What does the social justice movement teach? Now, before we look at what it is, let's first consider, as I often do, what it's not. What it's not. Because some Christians are carelessly labeling true believers with biblical commitments as if they have embraced the social justice movement. Unfairly, they are accusing them of that. In his really helpful book, Christianity and Wokeness, Owen Strawn includes a list of what wokeness or embracing the social justice movement is not. He points out that if you have these priorities, it doesn't mean that you have capitulated 
and become a social justice warrior. He points out, for example, that it's not wanting societal harmony across backgrounds and skin colors. That's not wokeness. It's not seeing massive failings in American and Western history, namely long and sustained patterns of racist thought and practice. It's not being troubled by Christians' complicity with racism in the past. It's not wanting greater justice in a world that is filled with injustice. It's not grieving the needless deaths of human beings who were made in the image of God. Having those priorities is not buying into the social justice movement. Those are proper Christian responses. So don't hear people expressing those things and think that they have bought into the social justice movement. So what is it? Well, let's start with a basic definition. At the heart of the social justice movement is a secular philosophy called the critical race theory. And I'm going to deal with this more at length in a moment, but let me just start with a definition. This is a friendly definition from the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. This is not its enemies. These are those who hold to this view, and this is what they write. CRT, the critical race theory, recognizes that racism is ingrained in the fabric and system of the American society. The individual racists need not exist to note that institutional racism is pervasive in the dominant culture. This is the analytical lens that CRT uses in examining existing power structures. CRT identifies that these power structures are based on white privilege and white supremacy which perpetuates the marginalization of people of color, end quote. Now, we're going to take some of that apart a little more in a moment, but what I want you to see here in this definition is that it is a comprehensive world view. Now, let's begin by considering some key vocabulary, because as we just learned with the gender issue, those in the social justice movement don't use traditional definitions of some really important key words. They redefine words to fit their system. And so we can be using the very same words, think we're saying the same thing, when in reality we're talking two different languages. So let's start with some important definitions. First of all, the word justice itself. Biblical justice is conformity to God's standard. That's the meaning of the word for righteousness in Scripture. It's conformity to God's standard. And in Scripture... Biblical justice takes two forms. First of all, when it comes to absolutely everyone, Scripture requires us to treat others in keeping with the God-given standard. We are to, in Micah 6.8, to do justice or to do justly. That is, we are to treat others in the ways that God has demanded that we treat them. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to carry out the, the spirit of the Ten Commandments and all of the other commands about how we are to relate to others. That is biblical justice in one sense, conformity to God's standard. The other expression of biblical justice has to do specifically with those in authority. Various authorities, whether in the home or in the government, authorities are required to treat everyone equally before the law in their decisions. Deuteronomy 10:17. we are, those in authority, are to make sure that their considering of individual cases and their decisions of those cases are characterized by 
the standard of law, by fairness before the law. That's biblical justice. So what is justice in the social justice movement? Again, this would be their definition. Justice is the destruction of oppressive systems and the redistribution of power and resources from the oppressors, the majority, to the oppressed, the minority, to achieve an equal outcome. We'll talk about why that's true in just a moment, but, but that is, as you can see, an entirely different definition of justice. Let's move on to the word racism. Webster's defines racism this way. It is the belief or doctrine that inherent differences among the various human races determine cultural or individual achievement, usually involving the idea that one's own race is superior and has the right to rule others, end quote. That is the traditional definition and understanding of racism. Robin D'Angelo, a leading academic and voice for the critical race theory, has an entirely different definition of racism. She writes, racism is a far-reaching system that functions independently from the intentions or self-images of individual actors. Now, when you look at those definitions and you look at others out there that are offered to describe the justice, or excuse me, to describe racism in CRT, you'll find some key differences between a traditional definition of racism and the new definition. The two key ones, I think, are these. First of all, traditional racism, a traditional understanding, is that it is an individual response. But in the, in the new definition, it is a collective response. It is a systemic or structural response. The other difference between racism in these two definitions is that typically traditional racism has referred to this as a universal issue. In other words, there is no human being who cannot demonstrate this sin. In the new definition of racism, only those in the majority can demonstrate racism. If you're in the minority, that is impossible. Now, these are key changes. And by the way, there's a huge current push to change all of the dictionary definitions. And by the way, this is still the definition in, in Webster's Oxford Dictionary and so forth, to change all of those dictionary defi- definitions to fit this new theory. Now, there are a couple of other definitions I need to give you. I wish I didn't, uh, but we need to do it because they're part of the words that are used and the definitions that are given, even that I've already shared with you. So let me look at them briefly. First of all, white privilege. This means that whites are born into a society balanced in their favor and therefore with advantages, prejudices, and assumptions that make them oppressors whether they know it or not. White supremacy, anything that supports or promotes white privilege. White fragility, the inherent inability of a person in the majority to reasonably discuss race because of that person's privilege. In other words, because you are in the majority, you have no real sense of what oppression is, and therefore you are not in a position to really discuss it because you, you intuitively only understand privilege. Standpoint epistemology is the idea that the lived experience of those in the minority outweighs objective evidence and reason when discussing issues of oppression. 
So in other words, the very fact that a person is in the minority, whatever that minority may be in whatever cultural context, they are the only ones who can truly understand what oppression is and say, yes, I am being oppressed at this moment, even if there is a discussion to say, well, let's look at the objective evidence to see if that measures. That's not valid because if you're in the majority, you don't have the capacity, you don't have the standpoint to determine that. And then finally, woke or wokeness, it is being awake to systemic oppression that's taught in the CRT and embracing the need for the redistribution of power from the oppressor to the oppressed. Now, if you don't understand all of that, that's okay, but I want you to get the big picture and we're going to fill out a little bit more as we move along. That's a functional definition. Secondly, let's consider its philosophical formation. How did this concept develop? The social justice movement grew into its current form in three basic stages. It began with Marxism. Karl Marx wanted to construct a worldview that was consistent with his atheism. If you doubt that, read the Communist Manifesto written in 1848. Here's one quote, quote, communism abolishes eternal truths, end quote. That is the goal of Marxism. Marx's endeavor was to replace God with a solely materialistic worldview. Get everything metaphysical, everything divine out of the picture, and let's instead just look at the physical and let's interpret the world based on physical realities. Now, when he looked then at the problems that people deal with in this life, Marx said the basic problem with people is not sin. It is instead the fault of society's institutions, government, family, and so forth. Our problems, he said, are institutional, they are structural, they are systemic. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but here's Webster's definition of Marxism. It is the system of economic and political thought developed by Karl Marx along with Frederick Engels, especially the doctrine that the state throughout history has been a device for the exploitation of the masses by a dominant ruling class, that class struggle has been the main agency of historical change. In other words, revolution. The haves, Marx said, have more than the have-nots because the have-nots are forced to live in a rigged, unfair system. The solution, Marx said, was communism. Revolution accompanied by the destruction of existing authorities and the rebuilding of a new communistic authority. Marxism eventually gave birth to a second stage in this development, and that is the critical theory. The critical theory. In 1923, a network of Marxists disillusioned with classical Marxism because it hadn't become all that they had hoped, began what's called the Frankfurt School in Frankfurt, Germany. These key individuals included Antonio Gramsci, Herbert Marcuse, Max Horkheimer, three men. Their goal was to implement neo-Marxism around the world. It was in the year 1937 that one of them, Horkheimer, coined and defined the expression critical theory in an essay that he wrote. The critical theory, also called cultural Marxism, 
grows out of classical Marxism and argues that in every society there are the oppressors and there are the oppressed. The oppressors, the privileged, keep in power by enforcing their values and norms. Now, Marx focused on economic inequalities and saw oppression happening through economic and political power. The critical theory in the Frankfurt School, they added inequalities between ethnic groups, the sexes, and gender identity groups. Those in the majority are privileged and oppressive. Those in the minority are underprivileged and oppressed. And by the way, that's not just true in America. That's not just true with with the predominant races here. That's true in every culture at some level, uh, whatever country you choose. They argued that those in power use knowledge and language as tools of oppression to maintain power. Jeffrey Johnson, in his helpful book, writes this, it's not necessarily jails or prisons that keep the have-nots oppressed. It is language itself that is holding them down. The haves define the meaning of words, and such prescribed meaning is what keeps the have-nots in line and submissive. And listen to this. This is important. This is the heart of critical theory. Any authoritative meaning that passes itself off as objective truth is inherently discriminating and oppressive. Any authoritative meaning, any objective truth is inherently discriminating and oppressive. Now, in the 1930s, these professors in the Frankfurt School fled Germany because of Adolf Hitler. Eventually, they came to the United States and settled in 1935 in New York at Columbia University, where they began to teach. From there, during the following decades throughout the 20th century, they worked tirelessly to spread this philosophy across the academic world in America and beyond. And folks, they were wildly successful. If you doubt that, just go online and Google the critical theory or the critical race theory studies in university, and you'll see it permeates the academic world. Undoubtedly, it permeates your dear old alma mater as well. Now, this theory eventually became the basis in the third stage of this development, the critical race theory. In the critical theory, at the top are privileged oppressors, at the bottom are oppressed victims. In the critical race theory, this is applied to race, to sex, and to gender. Scott Allen, in his helpful book on this subject, writes this, white heteronormative males have established and maintain hegemonic power structures to oppress and subjugate women, people of color, and sexual minorities, meaning LGBTQ+, and others. So that's the idea. White heteronormative males have established these power structures to oppress women, people of color, and sexual minorities. Tom Askell writes in another helpful book by What Standard, whites, men, heterosexuals, and cisgenders are all majority groups and therefore, according to CRT, inherently oppressive just by belonging to those groups. Now you'll notice that 
The critical race theory goes beyond race. When the sexual revolution joined forces with cultural Marxism, they came to the decision that those who hold, like us, traditional morality are oppressors. In other words, I don't care what your, your ethnicity or, or sex is, you are an oppressor by the very fact that you believe what we believe as Christians. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 13 of his series, Trending Versus Truth. Tom will have part 14 for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.